Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. This episode is part two of an interview with Ben Miller, founder and CEO of Fundrise, the first online real estate investment platform that he founded in 2012. In the last episode, we discussed his background and origins of the company. We will continue to discuss Fundrise's risk mitigation strategies and the deal review process as they look at new transactions. And then I'll move into his views of the real estate markets today in the pandemic and how he sees them playing out for his company. Then how he builds his team, how he built his team and builds it going forward and further into his investment philosophy, setting his company apart from the private equity business philosophically. And then we divert into discussing his life priorities and some of his key learnings in his pro- in the process of growing a company. Once again, Tom Amos, my new sidekick, will be joining me to discuss his key learnings from the conversation and questions, and hopefully we'll share some takeaways for you, the listeners. So without further ado, here is part two of my conversation with Ben Miller. You, you've touched a little bit about this, but how do you gauge risk in both individual and portfolio balancing? How do you gauge risk in individual deals and portfolio balancing? What's your, what's your lens for risk on deals? I get a lot of pleasure out of thinking about risk. I think it's a skill that you can develop where you think about scenarios and you say, okay, how bad can this go? Just imagine scenarios where everything goes wrong and what happens. And then you think about what you wish you'd done beforehand imagining that scenario. So I have a friend who called it world, world-class downsider. He's world-class at thinking about downside scenarios. And so that's what I like to do and our team does. And we spend a lot of time imagining what if the you know, tenant goes bankrupt or what if the developer absconds into the night? And what if the, you think about these things and say, what should you do in that scenario? We spend years preparing and imagining a downturn and actually, probably the last three years, since 2017, I've been warning investors mm-hmm. that one was imminent. Mm-hmm. And we seemed wrong. We seemed like, like totally off tune with the world. The world was in euphoria about how much growth there was. In 2019, the stock market was up 30%. And I thought that was scary. Most people mm-hmm. thought that was great. Yep. And so this is a classic Seth Klarman you know, value investment, which is, you know, worry about the downside and the upside takes care of itself. And that's about long-term investing. That's different than IRR. IRR is not, you really can't do great IRRs consistently. If you're focused on the downside, you, you end up focusing on the upside. And the upside is great as long as things go well. That's what you're talking about is inversion thinking. So what could go wrong? 
you know, that's, you, you should always do that in my mind. <laughs> What's the worst thing that could happen? <laughs> it, it, it bothers some people though, because it seems so, it's like a downer. Counterintuitive, yeah. And, and just like, well, it's just like not fun. Like, oh man, this again? Yeah, right. Warren Buffett Anyways, does it, it. Warren Buffett does it on his investing strategy too. Yeah. What's the worst thing that could happen? You know, and uh, that's their thought process and in their investing. And he's done pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if the, the challenge, if you look at the public markets is value investing is actually underperformed growth investing for five, 10 and 30 years running now. And that's an interesting phenomenon. It's not so much true in real estate. I think the private markets are a lot less efficient than the public markets. Mm-hmm. And so you can't really get good value from right. the public markets anymore. Uh, just too efficient. Mm-hmm. But the private markets are just totally different. You can find inefficiencies. You can find um, uh, deals that uh, we can get into that don't really make sense. We get a return that doesn't make sense. It's much better because of dynamics around the deal that is rare in the public markets. I think Warren Buffett and the public market value investment strategy is challenged. It's a challenging model in the day and age of, uh, of information, you know, uh, transparency. Well, he's sitting on a lot of cash like you are right now and trying to find the right opportunities. He just needs to, we go through this down cycle, he will find situations, I'm sure, just like you will. So it'll be interesting to see. So talk about your process of investment. So you've talked about your philosophy of investment. How about your process, how you look at deals? So I'm a developer and I'm bringing in a new project to develop and I need financing on it. I've got a first lined up, let's say, with a, with a bank. And I need a combination of equity and or uh, mezzanine debt to complete the capital stack that I'm developing the project. I'm bringing, say, 10% equity to the deal from my friends and family and myself as a developer. So walk me through your process a little bit. We typically invest as a, as a second or as preferred. Mm-hmm. And today it's been a great, it has been a great strategy. And it, I think today it is a great strategy. Lenders have pulled back. And so instead, instead of being at 75% or even higher LTC, lenders are now back at 55, which leaves a huge hole in the capital stack. So we're, we're going in between 55 and, and 80 as a preferred position. That's, that's a terrific place for us is in terms of the risk return for our investor. And we see a lot of those deals and we typically are the best and lowest cost capital for that solution. And in terms of equity, we have a few joint venture partners we really like and have been successful on multifamily doing um, buying class B and doing some value add. But that strategy, as things played itself out to a large extent, and as we get bigger, we're finding it's actually preferable to vertically integrate and to do deals directly rather than through a partner, and that it's um, difficult to get the right alignment with a joint venture partner here. It's our investors are long-term investors, and the developer, you know, is primarily incentivized to get their promote, which means they have to move fast, they have to refinance, they have to sell, they have to capitalize their, their interest in the deal. And that, that means they basically have a different, they want, they're, they're willing to take more risk 
than we are. We've really moved in the last year to doing a, a lot more deals, as I said, totally vertically integrated. So if you think about the cost efficiency, if you as a small investor, you're maybe you're going to write a $100,000 check, you can't really get into real estate with a $100,000 check. We've gotten rid of the brokers. We've gotten rid of the broker dealers. We've gotten rid of the wholesalers. We've gotten rid of the RIAs. We've gotten rid of the private equity funds. And now we're removing the developer. So that you're talking, I don't know how much in fee load and, and, and cost and profits you've taken out from these middlemen by having you be a direct owner in a real estate deal where we do all of that for 1%, but it's a lot. So in your joint ventures, it was a typically a 90-10 structure, 90% your money and 10 of developers, or were you looking for a, a better split than that? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the norm was 90-10. We would put 90% in or 95% in, developer okay. put in 5 to 10%, and we would take a, they, they, you know, they promote us. And there are a few developers who really earn that. Right. Um, but there's not that many, actually. The reality in real estate, and this has been happening for the last you know, few decades, is it's gotten a lot more efficient. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a multifamily deal now, if that multifamily deal is being auctioned and institutional uh, brokers auctioning at CBRE, Cushman, the price is basically set by the market. You know, whether you're, you can pick 10 different multifamily developers they bring you the deal, but the reality is that deal was marketed. So there really wasn't, there's no material advantage that developers bringing in terms of the price of that deal. And then they hire a third-party property manager. They go get financing. It's, it's usually non-recourse. And so what is the value add they created to get that promote and all those fees? Are you talking about a development situation or an acquisition? Well, I'm talking, I mean, mostly acquisitions. Development, yeah, development's more work, a lot more work. The point is that the market's becoming more and more efficient for real estate. For acquisition, I agree with you. Yeah. I, yeah development, it's, it's going to be painful, particularly with the land use issues that we're dealing with today. It's going to be harder going forward, in my view, to develop than it's been in the past. Even with technologically. That's true. And I, I was a, you know, I worked for my father. I did development, done lots of development firsthand. And what I found was actually is when I moved from development to buying apartment buildings, renovating them, right. or just sitting on them, mm-hmm. we made, I made more money or just as much money buying an asset and selling an asset as developing it. Right. And I, and I came away saying, well, why the heck? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's a hundred it's a hundred to a thousand times more work and more complexity and so it's it we we do development but it's only along very narrow strategies mm-hmm. and anyways but the point is is that um in the in the goal of driving ruthless technological efficiency into the space you want to want to cut down costs and you cut down costs by vertically integrated that's what's happening in the banking sector too I mean, it's just vertical integration is how you lower the cost of doing business. It's interesting. The, the race to efficiency and race to the bottom you talk about is more and more fragile in the thought process. We go back to the anti-fragile thing because, you know, you get this efficiency going and 
you throw a monkey wrench into the into the mix like a pandemic and there's just there's nobody ready nobody's ready for it so you know to some extent you have to kind of with as you suggest keep reserves perhaps beyond what you should consider keeping just to protect yourself in the event of some black swan event or some unusual thing happening in an increasingly efficient marketplace i think that's right but i would take a slight modification to it. So okay. I would say that yeah, globalization caused um, a drive to efficiency, which mm-hmm. basically ended up not creating enough resiliency in the supply chain. No question. Mm-hmm. But the people who are successful today actually were the most vertically integrated, like Amazon, and that the ones who outsourced their vertical integration, right, were not ready for the shock. And so, so I think that like, if you think about money, money is a, is, is a good that moves through a supply chain just like uh, a radio or a TV does. You know, there's somebody who makes the money, invests it into a pension fund. The pension fund has a pension fund advisor. Pension fund advisor then puts it into a private equity fund or a broker. Broker moves it. And it goes through all these middlemen. And then when there's a supply chain shock, you know, usually you can't get more of the thing in a crisis. You can't get more money. You can't get more of the goods and, mat- and materials you need. Because the supply chain, you don't control the supply chain. Mm-hmm. And so I think that actually you'll see more vertical integration as a result of this crisis because it's the only way you can have control over your flow. Interesting. So more monopoly, in essence, uh, than, than, than less. So competition's not a good thing. <laughs> so going to Peter yeah. Thiel's thought process. I mean, I mean, the big get bigger, right? Because you have to be big to have enough power over how things move. It's interesting because you know, obviously, legislature, legislators, and and the people are concerned about too much power cent- centralized on one source, and that goes and that's a social construct for the government as well as private industry. So, uh, it's a human phenomenon. People don't like. Concentration power. That's right. It's a tall poppy syndrome. Right. Even if that's that person or that company is actually saving your, your entire society. I mean, there's a handful of companies today are keeping us from collapsing. Right. And we both are dependent on them and resentful. So what it is is a, uh, a beneficial oligopoly in essence. You know, they look upon society as being the benefit, you know, giving, giving benefit. But, you know. The wheels can turn real quickly the other way. <laughs> so, I know it's, a, it's almost a benevolent dictatorship, like that's Singapore. Right. Yes, people wish we had a government that was able to operate as efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's yes. those types of models are usually not resilient to changing leadership. That's the problem, right? Right. right? So that, as you, as libertarian, you know, will say like it's all great. You have uh, Be- Bezos running Amazon, but then you know over time the leadership will change and that, and that benevolent dictatorship becomes just a straight dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Let's shift gears here uh, to the real estate markets. You've talked about your company and how you've evolved and what you're doing. Now, how do you look at the deals? How do you look at the markets now? You initially started in DC and then expanded geographically. You mentioned the smile state states, which it's pretty common in a lot of people looking for growth markets. Why and how do you assess markets for investment? So this goes back to 
point we're talking about, about supply chain. So most real estate players become product specialists. Mm-hmm. So my dad's a retail developer. Uh, I think you interviewed um, Dave Flanagan from Elm Street. He's a land developer. You're a multifamily developer, a condo developer. So the problem with that is that that's your business, even when it shouldn't be. You know, condo developers that were the, everybody was a condo developer in 2005 and six. You know, by 2009 and 10, that was a dead business. And so there, what happens is essentially become, because you are a part of a supply chain, your business is to be uh, a solution to build, say, retail or malls, as my father built, used to build malls. You can't easily pivot from being a mall developer to being a hotel, hotel developer or to being a multifamily developer. You become a specialist. And so you, you advocate and build and try to raise money for that product even when it doesn't make sense. And that's a flaw because you don't control the supply chain. You, don't, you can't raise money. You can't evolve your business. That's just not possible for most developers. I'll take a su- exception to that and to some extent. I mean, the sector you're talking about in retail has so many facets to it that you can adapt the retail space to a different type of complexion that it has historically, which I think is what's going to happen, in my view. And in the hospitality space, the same thing. And, and interestingly, other sectors like office and residential are moving more and more into a hospitality type of thought process, which I think crosses over product lines a little bit. So what's your thought about that? There's an evolution, but I'm saying right now, the industry built itself into becoming a multifamily-dominated space. More multifamily developers, more multifamily acquisition shops, which came out of basically the last 10 years of multifamily being the hot product. Most of the people used to, you know, a lot of the people used to be condo developers, and they like JPI, and they became multifamily developers. So they're out there pushing multifamily, irrespective of whether or not that's actually where the future is. Mm -hmm. And if you're a multifamily developer, you almost surely are trying to raise money for multifamily as somebody who has a company basically that is the full supply chain. I think I'm skeptical that multifamily is the future. I say right now, I have no idea what the future is. There's so much flux happening. And so you, the point I'm, I guess I'm trying to make at a high level is that you have to be on trend. You have to be invested in the future. And that if you're not in the future, in a product type that's the future, you're going to underperform. And so uh, uh, let, me, uh, let me take a caveat, let me go on a, on a caveat here and come back to this point. So if you were investing in suburban office in 2006, you may have bought or sold a, a building for $75 million in Reston. And then in 2010, bought that building again for $50 million, thinking at the bottom of the cycle, it's a great buy. Because it was worth seventy-five million in two thousand six, and now you bought it for fifty million in two thousand ten, and you would have sold that building in two thousand nineteen for forty million. Mm-hmm. And that's because suburban office was out of favor. Same with suburban retail. Same almost all suburban products, even suburban land. A lot of the land development that people bought in two thousand ten, eleven, twelve, because they thought it was really cheap. It didn't really recover because the, the young customer didn't want to move mm-hmm. way the heck out. They wanted mm-hmm. to stay in the cities. Right. And so 
if you weren't on trend, if you weren't you know, part of the major growth drivers, mm-hmm. you underperformed. Mm-hmm. And that has nothing to do with your expertise. It doesn't matter if you're a hotel developer. It only matters basically if, if the consumer and the technological changes are driving your sector or not. And it's difficult for most real estate players to be that agile, to basically to go from being you know, a hotel developer to an industrial developer. That's extremely rare. It actually usually only happens at the top of the market, not at the bottom of the market. So I, my point is, as an investor, uh, I mean, my 2008 experience and 2001 too, is, is that you have to be in one of the major macro driver themes. And if you're not, it doesn't matter how good a hotel developer you are, you're going to get smashed by the pandemic. You, my father, you can be a great retail developer, you can get smashed by the pandemic, by trend, by e-commerce. And that, that just is not normal in real estate to, to be able to go from, from one product class to another easily. You mentioned multifamily being the, the darling of the industry, but then you said you're not sure that that's going to be the future. Expand on that a little bit. Yeah, so, so the pandemic is changing consumer preferences very, very quickly. And so to me, there's a few obvious conclusions, and then there's a few questions you, you and I can debate. So core office, to me, is the next suburban office. It's the meaning that it's going to de- deteriorate in value, I think, for the next seven to 10 years. That if you're of a skyscraper in Chicago or you're of, or a skyscraper of, of condo, luxury condos in New York, that the trend is going to be away from that product in the same way that suburban died in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, core, core, core vertical office and, and, and luxury apartments will suffer. I think will suffer in the next 10 years. That's what happened. You have some products that really fall out of favor. You have some products that fall into favor. And you have some products that basically are kind of neutral. And so I think multifamily probably is mostly neutral, which is okay, but not great. I, I think that the, the young, I mean, this is something we've been, we as Fundrise, we are, you know, 30, mostly in their 30s, team companies mostly in their 30s. So we are the core customer. Mm-hmm. And the core customer doesn't want to live in an apartment. I kept telling people, that the apartment is, is, a, is not a choice. It was a necessity. They didn't want to be there. And the multifamily guys said, no, 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 no. That's the future. It's because of cost. It was because of affordability. Mm-hmm. And, right. and the, the work from home or the remote technology is blowing that up. Absolutely blowing that up. And it's just getting started. People think of it, think of it as work from home, but you know, in the next three to five years, the technology is going to amplify it with VR and with, with greater and greater improvement. And I think that what we're seeing now will be a trend that will be even greater than people expect, just like e-commerce. You saw it, it was early. You said, oh, this is going to change things. But it was even greater than people expected. And that we'll see a, a shift away from uh, what was, I think, an aberration. The home ownership rates plummeted 
in the last 10 years and people said that's the norm, I think that's the aberration. I think people mostly want to have great living space and that's not a 500 square foot apartment. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the multifamily industry will, will suffer for that. So where do you see it going then? I mean, everyone has to live somewhere. So there is a huge stock of suburban housing around the country. Uh, here in Washington, we have a large stock of it. There's not a lot of land that is not zoned for it. And there is talk of densifying existing subdivisions so to add on. Is that something that you're looking at? Is densification of suburban single-family housing? This is the question. And so we, so we, I don't think we have the answer yet, but the, you, you, you start with macro trend. You say, okay, this is the product uh, thinking that we've learned at Fundrise for you know, thinking, you start with the consumer. What's the consumer want? And you work backwards from there, the end customer. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you, you, know, you say, okay, I want to have a great home, lots of living space and great weather uh, with lots of, uh, of amenities. And that probably puts me south. You know, put, I, probably, I probably move to Austin. I probably don't move to Potomac. probably actually leave the city. And so I think that's why I compared it to white flight in the, in the 60s and 70s. And that we, we probably see an absolute change in, in living patterns. And we see the kind of a, a spreading out, but not a spreading to the suburbs, but a spreading to whole different regions that are, have better weather, more affordability. And this is not theory. I mean, I have 100 people at Funrise all in that age group, <laughs> and it's all happening to them. They're all doing it right now. They're all moving to Raleigh and Austin. And so you can't keep them here, is what you're saying. Yeah? I mean, they're definitely moving today because there's no reason to be in uh, a 500-square-foot apartment when uh-huh. you can't even go to the office. But I think that trend is permanent. It's funny you say that. My son just spent a week with us, and he lives in Brooklyn in an 800-square-foot apartment with his girlfriend. And he was here for a week in our house and was able to spread out. And he, he loved it. He was, you know, and, and he said, you know, we're going to rent a car. And they rented a car and they drove. And he had never owned a car and still has not He's 30 years old. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, we're thinking about buying a car now. <laughs> so that's a yep. thought process that's evolved, certainly. It's a revolution. And, and the challenge for real estate is most of real estate is about, I mean, location. Right. I mean, it's, it's location, location, location. And what happens when technology devalues location? It's interesting. And that premium for location in core Manhattan is going to be devalued. And so if you're, if you're at 2,000 a square foot in Manhattan and you're at $200 a square foot in Austin or $300 a square foot, I think you're going to see a deterioration in that premium as a result of technology and this change in consumer preferences. Interesting. And so the question, it's easy to see how what deteriorates, I, I believe. It's difficult to see what appreciates. Your lens for investment then is a little foggy right now, it sounds like. It's a little bit like when we first started Fundrise. I have, we have an intuitive sense of where the trend is headed. We know that it's going to be driven by technology. We know it's going to be driven by consumer preferences. 
the way you build a great business is by doing, right? By getting into the fray. By by, so Fundrise is going to adopt a work from home model. We're going to adopt the future of of work and and technology, and by doing so, we'll figure out how it works, and we'll embrace it and we'll invest in it, and that's the best way to to, to succeed is by iterating firsthand by being thoughtful in the execution and this, the study and the, and the analysis, mm-hmm. it doesn't, doesn't usually hold up to the execution. And so, so I think we'll, we'll, we'll ride the trend and we'll embrace the trend and we'll figure it out. And, you know, as I say, it'll seem obvious in retrospect, as we, as we go forward say, okay, your son and, and everybody in my company wants great living. Okay. We can invest in that. Interesting. So let me let me ask you on another uh, framework. When you make deals and when you're looking at real estate, do you do you apply uh, what I call a social lens on your investments, or do you only look at the deal and the market economics? You know, the long term and the, the numbers, as opposed to does this project offer green or other social benefits, does it contribute to the community in some form or fashion from a real estate perspective? You have that lens at all in your investing? We have the lens, but not in the traditional sense. We, we follow our customer. Our customer wants to, to be successful, and, but without causing harm. Mm-hmm. So it's much more about embracing change, building things up, than about sort of like a construct of what is socially good you know oh it's green so it's good Mm -hmm. our customer wants us to to do good things but they you know they don't want to necessarily have their returns deteriorate by doing them so for example our customer would not be happy evicting people so that they can make more money Mm -hmm. they don't want to see harm done Mm -hmm. most of them don't want to see a much lower return because we're going to you know do a green building or something. A lot of times, uh, our, even our customers have said, where we've done things that are socially good, sometimes they say, oh, this is, you know, is that for your ego or my ego? <laughs> who, who is benefiting here? Uh-huh. So we, we really have to be focused on getting them the best return with, in a progressive way. You know, we're, as I said, we're, we're, we're amplifying growth trends, but we're not you know, necessarily making them trade off return for social goods. That's really up. To, that's their choice, not my choice. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, what other? Uh, you mentioned some interesting trends. Anything else that you'd like to share from a trend standpoint in the real estate sector that you think maybe other people haven't seen yet or haven't thought about from what you've seen? Because you see so many deals. I mean, what are you seeing that other people aren't right now? The good thing about trend. Is that actually, when you think about it, it's obvious. So, uh, last mile industrial, we haven't talked about that. Right. That trend. There's also something called last mile um, data, mm-hmm. where as, as people spread out, you, know, the, the, you can focus on the living, but then you can also focus on the support for that living. So, that means they have to get their supply of goods and, and um, internet. Which means they have to. We have to build more infrastructure to deliver e-commerce and and broadband and five G. I mean, five G. I mean, that's why I know work from work remotely is going to be a revolution 
within 24 months, 5G is going to be almost everywhere, maybe 36 months. And so the idea of even having broadband is going to become invisible because it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's going to, comp- going, to, going to make it a lot easier to, to, to um, spread out. And then how you support those people, how do they get their goods and services uh, conveniently? Because it's just, you know, Amazon is a metaphor for, you know, demanding convenience in a way that seems impossibly expensive to deliver, but it, it expected as a norm. You know, the package is delivered same day. Um, your internet works seamlessly everywhere. And all of that is infrastructure. Mm-hmm. That's a form of real estate. Yep. You know, great real estate disappears into the background. What's in the foreground are our, our relationships, you know, a sense of community, a sense of, uh, of, of nature. And that, I mean, this is what I learned from my father. I mean, it's, it's, you spend all your time thinking about how people consume the real estate. And most real estate in the last 20 years has been built for Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> that's funny. That's and that's, I think that's a, it's, it's a great way to make money in the short term, uh-huh. but it's, it really is not uh, what real estate's about. Yes. My podcast before last with David Kitchens, I don't know if you've heard it, but he talks about taste in architecture. And I think that the themes you just talked about have very long-term thinking vis-a-vis not as much economics, but are you leaving something that really fits into the environment physically? And does it have taste? And does it have long-term sustainability? And I think that's an important factor in real estate that often is overlooked. So it's interesting. Talk about your team a little bit, how you assembled it, and uh, what skills uh, were you seeking among your colleagues that uh, complemented your skills? It took us a while to figure it out, and we actually had to iterate on this one. But by this time, we know we're looking for what it, what, it, what it means. You find people, I mean, the first and foremost, you find somebody who's got incredible raw smarts and really just talented. And then you want to combine that with low ego. So you, a lot of times people are really talented but have a lot of ego, mm-hmm. uh, not a team player. And so you want low-ego people who are really, really, really smart who um, have an attitude where they just want to like dig the ditch, you know, pitch in, nothing's too small. And uh, we have a saying in coming which is you know, it's all about ditch digging. And so we, um, you find somebody who's got the right attitude, who's low-ego and really smart, they can do anything. They really... And they just fit into the team. The team is just made up of, you know, we have 123 people like that. The actual, like, knowledge is much less important. You can, you can get knowledge on the job. You can basically, like, I mean, knowledge is ephemeral. I mean, it, what was knowledge before is now maybe no longer true <laughs> as, as things change so quickly. Yeah. Right. And so it's more important to be able to learn and, right. and to want to learn right. and to shed and to shed basically what you think is right, which is usually ego-driven. I mean, my father actually is saying, which is intelligence is smarts minus ego. That's funny. You know, it's interesting. You know, everyone has a blind spot now because they don't know what's coming with what's, what we're experiencing. <laughs> so how do you avoid blind spots? I guess you just have as much of an open mind and accept what you don't know, I guess. 
and you and and to look at two things to look at what you want the answer to be uh-huh. and if you and that's the immediate thing you should you should discount discount what your desires because your the world doesn't care what you want right and the second thing which is uh is examine your conflicts of interest so when you're hiring somebody what do you, what questions do you ask them i mean how do you how do you discern who fits and who doesn't fit for you this is actually take this from the tech industry that that um recruiting and hiring is a privilege and most people don't know how to do it and and you get the you really like you get to be able to interview and hire people only after proving that you have the skill for it most people i've found don't know how to do it they spend more time in the interview uh, trying to get the person to like them and to be liked rather than trying to, to listen mm-hmm. and really listening and observing and is a skill is an incredible skill just to sit there and watch and, and see how people are internally motivated. That's a, something that uh, a great interview is probably basically you, you ask questions and you push them hard to see basically how, what's happening inside them and make sure that you're getting the truth and you're and you're just you know again you're looking for raw raw intelligence, uh, a low ego, which is you know you can look for low ego by looking for candor, and candor is usually a good sign for for being able to put your ego aside. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> and, and so that's just you just ask questions, try to get at at that. Mm-hmm. How do, can they? How do they think? And um, mm-hmm. and anyway, that's again something I think you have to learn on the job. Sure. So. Your platform's grown significantly since inception, and it appears that you have a long-term strategy that is resilient to market forces. To what do you attribute that, if so? A lot of luck. <laughs> okay. So much of success is luck. I think it's dangerous. Really successful people think that they are a genius and they must, they're successful because they you know, were so smart. But there's so much... A chance in success, and so we we were we have really good people who are who I think are all trying to do the right thing, and then just getting on the right macro, getting on the right on the right trend. You know, as, a, as a, if you think about it, right? Technology, just being involved in technology, and having you know we have fifty software engineers on on staff who are part of the team, and you're not just like they don't just like do work, right? They're part of the, of the DNA of the company. Mm-hmm. And that alone just makes us think and behave differently because in real estate companies use software but don't make software. And software, it is what it means to be part of the future. So Ben, you sent me yesterday an analysis of your portfolio that was in some detail granular detail that perhaps only either a full-time market consultant that does analytic, you know, deep, deep detail or a software oriented mind, you know, thought process of being able to pick something apart to, to, to minutia would do. Uh, is that something that you like to provide to your, uh, your investors typically? What was behind that thought process of doing that? So we created a stress test analysis of our portfolio 
which we published March 31st. And if you roll back time to March 15th to March 31st, 2020, that was the you know peak of the of the sort of COVID-19 panic, where the COVID-19 went from essentially not being in the United States to to potential panic that it would cause a collapse and the stock market had fallen 30% in in like two weeks. And so we both for our own sake wanted to look at our portfolio and say, okay, th- if this is a, is going to be a great recession, how are we going to perform? And then we have a view with our customer that it's not enough to say anything. You always have to prove it. Mm-hmm. And so we then publish it out. It's transparency is always about discomfort. The more discomfort you feel, the more likely the transparency is on point. And so we wanted to share with our customer like a, uh, a stress test of our portfolio, assuming the pandemic was at the time what I thought was likely, which was, um, you know, I, I had uh, the analysis thing. We had something like, uh, what if 35% of, of people couldn't pay their rent for a year? Right. Which now it looks like it's been about running about six and a half percent delinquencies so far, so far, so far, exactly. And so we did a, we, we did that analysis deal by deal, very granular, published it out to show basically essentially that a resilience to the portfolio that I think we would have like a, you know, maybe 0.2% principal loss in the, in the scenario where the pandemic causes 12 months of extreme economic collapse, what, what turned out to be much worse than reality so far. So far, it's been mitigated by the stimulus. We'll see if that continues. But I think our customer, I mean, one of the things about our product is more of a, a choice, but to be different than the normal financial industry, you want to show the good and the bad. You want to own the reality. And that's an authenticity that I think customer loves. But most businesses don't like to be transparent about things that are bad. They, they want to just talk about the good and it makes them inauthentic or, or let's say not, not as credible. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've always tried, we're, we're, our goal is to be transparent and good and bad. And that over time, that makes for a great brand and a great level of trust. That's great. So this is kind of a normal process for you when you see something ahead that your customer might be interested in learning about. So you have an educational orientation to your, for your customer. You try yeah, or, we, or if a deal goes bad, we had a deal go bad a year ago mm-hmm. where the developer did something bad. I, we sued them. And within a few days, we published it out to all our investors. You know, within 60 days, it settled and they paid us their money and we got return of capital. And, and it was a PREF deal where there was some not so good behavior. Now that I've signed the uh, order, we can't really talk about it in much detail. But the point is, was um, you know, we published that out to our investors, which was you know, hundred thousand people more, and that was unusual. And it turned out that we, you know, we had a good outcome. But when we first published it out, we had no idea what the outcome would be. And so, to consistently be transparent in in bad times and good times. It's really the bad times that that builds the trust, even though it feels like you're you look bad. 
You just mentioned 100,000 customers. Can you, for maybe a minute, just give me an overview of the statistics behind your customer base, the demographics, the uh, average investment size, the scale, quickly, if you can. Yeah, I mean, we have, um, I would say right now, maybe 135,000 investors, maybe more. The average investor is, you know, probably late 30s, early 40s. So, but it ranges, you know, with that many people. We have investors who are 20 years old and investors who are 90 years old and in all the states. And, but it, it clusters around sort of a, a, a 38 to 40-year-old who's, who's wealthy but not able to write you know, a $5 million check into a real estate deal. And they're, it's, it's really, I think, a modern investor because they probably do everything on mobile, everything's on their phone, they bank mobily, they invest mobily. It's more convenient. It's, and it's, um, and we, we invest, today we have about 1.1 billion of equity under management, uh, which is about three or four billion dollars in real estate and, and growing. So we're about institutional scale, but we, you know, we've, with an average investment of like $10,000, that's a much smaller investment. We're talking about $10,000 on our platform with, you know, across 15 to 20 funds. And so, um, you know, any so, one investor may have only, you know, a few thousand dollars or a few hundred dollars in a fund. So I mean, a typical fund may have 50,000 investors, which is, right. you know, typical fund might only have, in a, in a private equity context, may only have like 50 investors. Interesting. So tell me how your um, customer relations works. I mean, somebody, let's say, let's say somebody's invested, you know, two or three deals. And, you know, I know you're at the E-REIT format now. So they're basically buying shares in that as, as opposed to an individual transaction. Is that kind of the way uh, somebody interfaces with you now? Or do you ha- also have the opportunity to invest in individual deals? Uh, no, no deals and not even funds. People can do funds. Mostly people don't, aren't looking for funds. Most people are looking for outcomes. And so the real estate person usually uh, has a wrong uh, starting point. And so I have to usually back them up and say, okay, hey, John, you're going to go on to the stock market. You're going to invest in the stock market. Are you out there buying like individual stocks? Mm-hmm. Mostly not, maybe a few. And are you buying individual funds? And mostly not, right? You're probably investing much more broadly. You're probably mm-hmm. just doing, okay, I'm a 401k investor. I'm going to put money every month or into a basket that's broad, diversified, right. Right. and um, essentially simple, right? You're, not, you're right. not trying to put a lot of mental energy into it. You're, you're putting your mental energy into your, into your business, into your day-to-day work. This is supposed to be safe simple and hopefully good. And so our investors looking for putting your money into an alternative to stocks and bonds, into real estate. They want to have low costs. They want to have good outcomes and they want to have, and maybe they're looking for a yield or income, or they're looking for long-term return or just pure balance. We, we, we give them an investment advisory product that helps them make the decision as simply and easily as possible. And that will put them into usually a lot of funds, a lot of deals, a lot of diversification. That's why somebody might usually have you know hundred or two hundred deals in their in their portfolio, uh, even if they only invested two thousand dollars. 
So you have a basket, you have three different baskets, right? Of investment strategy for a, for a prospective investor. Yeah, we, we have three different outcomes that they usually choose, but the baskets will evolve depending on the market. Right. So we, and, and so um, the basket they're getting now is much different than the basket they were getting in, six months ago. Now it's the baskets mostly in the new funds that are holding a lot of cash, preparing to invest into a distressed market. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's different than where, where it was six months ago. That was mostly going into defensive investments, expecting a downturn. So it's an advised product, which is, again, a, about building a product that for the end customer to make it easy for them to get into real estate at a low cost. That's very sophisticated for a, uh, a firm like yours with the, you know, that small of an investment. That's, you guys are pretty unique in that regard. I, I see that at a large fund that's multi, you know, investing billions where they're like, a, for instance, a big life, life company has to look at that every day, their portfolio mix and how they allocate it. It sounds like you've gotten to that point where you're institutional in your thought process as far as uh, how you allocate your, your strategy, both currently and then going forward. It's fascinating. The technology is about aggregating and facilitating you know, millions of transactions so that it's simple from a um, management point of view. We, whether we have a billion dollars from two people, two funds, or a or billion dollars from 100,000, from a technology point of view, it's irrelevant. We have a process. We process uh, you know, a million 1099s and hundreds of thousands of K1s and, and uh, manage the distributions and payment processing. And then, of course, it's a communications platform, right? The critical part of investment management is your investor relations having an ability to, to give people real-time information about, about their investments. So a lot of our product is about how we connect with people, not just the, the money. So if I'm an investor and I've got a problem, will I talk to somebody or do I have to go online and just dig around for answers on, a Q, on an FAQ type of approach. Yeah, we have a whole team that, that interacts with, you know, the, we, have, we have a million users. And so we'll have, they'll do hundreds of calls. We have, yeah, we have basically, you can do it online. A lot of people prefer, you know, I mean, I prefer to not have to call somebody. You'd rather be able to do it on your mobile, on your phone. Right, figure it out. Yeah. So the, and so the, a good product has a, has basically makes it easy to solve your problems through the through the app right um, but we the key is to make it you, you build it again so that it's what's best for the customer and what's easy for the customer and so that of course sometimes is being available by phone well you're investing in fairly sophisticated things i mean there's so many variables in an investment that you know somebody may not figure not know what they're doing or what you know what what you're doing and they'd like to learn a little bit learn a little bit more but in looking at your website, which I will share, obviously, information from, you guys have a lot of background information, which is great. So I'm going to go to the last category, if you've got a couple minutes here. Your life priorities among family, work, and giving back. What's your, what's your thought process there, personally? The interesting thing about this pandemic, which has been terrible, the silver lining is that it's caused, I think, a lot of people to, to change how they live. And so I think I was a workaholic before and I got it from my father who was definitely a workaholic too. And um, 
being able to be home with my family, you know, present has been a lot more healthy, I think, for my life. And I think more pleasurable. I mean, the work from home is a lot of ways just better than I, than working from the office. And so it's, um, you know, you just realize that so much of life is about being, you know, present with the people that you love. You think this will be change your way you think about your work going forward? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I'm trying to embrace it. I, I think it's done right. It, it's better than the old model. Mm-hmm. How do you do that right? What management practices do you institute? What technological practices? It's not clear yet if it's possible to be better, but I, the hope is it's better and it's a win-win. And so, um, Great. so for me, in terms of life, you know, it's about trying to have kind of rich family life while you also have an impact on the world. And so for you know, Fundrise, I think any great business is about trying to make the world a better place. And that if you can do that and have, and make money, you know, that's the, a great, a great way to spend your time. Exactly. That's great. Do you and your team do charitable type things, give back to society in some way? Mostly we just work all the time. (laughs) (laughs) In the business, this is something like we, we, we try to basically do things that are always best for the customer. We have this, uh, one of our you know, values is put the investor first. And yeah. that means that like uh, you forego, oh, you know, economics to, for the benefit of the investor. And that's like uh, how you build a good business. But also it's, um, I mean, I came out of 2008 and I think it's going to happen again where the, just the, the normal investor, normal person gets taken advantage of by Wall Street model of investment. You know, it's the typical, the way the financial industry works is that it's like uh, the bigger the investor, the more valuable and every, everything's built around the large investors and the small investors basically are, are the dregs. They, you know, in an IPO, they essentially get in the worst price, right? The, the big investor comes in at the low valuation at the beginning. By the yep. time it goes public, it's a much higher price. And essentially in real estate, they weren't even like, you didn't even touch them. Like the small investor was not even a capital source. So if we can build a product where like Vanguard, you know, people are treated well, that'd be a great outcome for us. So it's in our, it's in our day-to-day, you know, it's not charity because we think it's a great business, but it's, it's definitely value-driven. So basically just bring your, your, your idea of giving back is to give the customer the best possible outcome in their interaction with you to some extent. Is that kind of an Yeah, I mean, and, and that might not be what's best for us. Understood. Okay. So in that way, you're giving back in some respects. Yeah. I mean, you hope that, you know, as you get more successful, we can do more. And we have ideas of how to do that as the product grows. Mm-hmm. So what, what were your biggest wins, biggest losses, and most surprising events in your career? Just one, say one of each. What's you, what, what do you say is the biggest win in your career? So to date, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest win is that we have a, I have a fundraise team. We, it's being able to work with people who are so talented and be able to grow with them. Mm-hmm. And it's like an organic answer where it's not like a transaction. It's a, 
it's an experience and relationships that we, we, that we have, have out of that. It's just been extraordinary. That's great. I say there'll be losses that, you know, I tried to figure out how to do that with, with my family and I just couldn't figure out how to do it. I think it's difficult. It's so difficult to, you know, so much of business is about having to put aside everything, but what's best for the end customer. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes like, uh, it's just challenging, I think, at times to do that in, in a family context. So it, it affects your personal life to some extent. Definitely, definitely. So I think that would probably be my biggest loss is never, haven't, I haven't figured that out yet. And what about surprise? What was the biggest surprising event so far? For me, this surprise was just like, I find that the, the way the business, the way Fundrise played out, even though in some ways it's what we thought we dreamed it might be, it was a surprise how it's, how it's been, you know, in some, in some ways our success was surprising because it didn't come from the, what we, I thought, I mean, it's been a um, really humbling experience. So things have evolved better than you thought in some, in ways that you didn't think would happen. That's what you're saying. Yeah. It's hard to, to describe to people who, until you, until you live it, but you know, it's like uh, your success comes in, in some ways, despite, what you thought was going to happen. And then you, you know, so there's a way it's sort of like surfing or any great, any great uh, athlete you over time is about flow. Mm-hmm. It's not like cerebral. It comes from an intuitive execution or to intuitive doing. And that's like a kind of a surprise to me. So much of like what you read about is it sounds like it was, um, you know, by design. Um, but I think a lot of times it's just not, it's just, it's by sort of by recognizing opportunity and going with it rather than, and which may not usually is not the way you sort of thought it would play out. So what advice would you give your 25 year old self today? I think that the first 10 years of my life, I think a lot of young people, they don't know what to do with themselves. They really don't know what they want with their life. I mean, this is like opposite my father who at age 11 drove by a mall under construction and decided he wanted to be a retail developer. And he, he knew what he wanted and so much of success is knowing what you want. And it's remarkable how many people actually don't know what they want. And so they go into management consulting and investment banking because they really don't know what to do with themselves. I think really successful people know what they want. And then once you know what you want, that's actually the hardest thing to accomplish because then you just know what to do. And I think Deciding what you want and then deciding to, to do it, it's so simple, but it's actually something that a lot of people don't have either the confidence or the sort of even the ability to decide. So if you could post a statement or on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? This was like a learning for me. So I, I think if I were to put a, a, a billboard, you know, especially if you're going into the Capitol, I think it would say, First, ask, what is the conflict of interest? Interesting. It doesn't really matter what people say. If you look at what's in their interest, lo and behold, that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very rare you see people rise above their conflict of interest. It's, this, it's the exception. It's, the, it's truly what's honorable. And there's a lot of noise, a lot of, um, a lot of learning for me actually was, going, was, was realizing it was a kind of a loss of innocence in a way. That it, it's just, if you follow someone's interest, that usually is the outcome they're working towards, whether they know it or not. 
And so if you first ask what's the conflict of interest, you, you probably see what's happening. And that's a, a great thing for, I mean, this is the challenge for all of our society today is that we're seeing a challenge. Uh, our leaders are not rising above their conflicts of interest. And so we're not getting great leadership. Interesting. Give me one example in your life that you've overcome that or been able to overcome that conflict or recognize it and deal with it. I mean, so much of, of having to uh, be a leader at Fundrise was to basically let other people be right, let other people basically, I mean, it's in my interest to, I mean, it's not always economic, it's often economic, sometimes it's ego, to let other people basically be, to let go. So we see it in a day-to-day around, around how we, when in doubt, there's an economic decision, we'll, we'll reduce our revenue and we'll cut our fees for the investor. They don't even know it. We don't even talk about it because it just, it just comes in the outcome. And, or in, the, in having how there was some very painful management decisions I had to make over the years where I had to basically say, well, what's in the best interest of the company, not my best interest? And suffer for it. I don't know if that's not ready for that one today, but definitely over the years, that's uh, that's I think how you build relationships and trust with your team. Great. Well, Ben, on that note, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate the uh, your candor, and this was one of the better interviews I've had. I have to say, it's been you've been very uh, open and and thorough with your explanations and responses, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. So we've just uh, listened to part two of Ben Miller's uh, discussion and our interview. And I am now pleased to reintroduce uh, Tom Amos into the discussion. Tom and I are going to do a recap discussion of our second conversation with Ben. And Tom is going to be a fixture to the podcast going forward to help me uh, kind of do a recap and give an interpretation of what uh, uh, the listener might be interested in learning. So, Tom, take it away. What, 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 right, do you, what issues you have? Sure. Yeah, so I had a couple of ideas on this uh, second recording of Ben. The thing that I wanted to dive into a little bit more here today was he talks a lot about vertical integration and how you know there's going to be this shift in the market towards vertical integration across all sorts of different markets just due to the advantages that that uh, imposes. And what I was curious, John, was what have you seen over the course of your career in the way of vertical integration in other developers in the industry? Have you seen more people taking on, whether that's property management and leasing or developers that started out as developers eventually moving into construction or some other type of field? Or is that something that is a relatively new concept? And do you think that we're going to be seeing more of that move forward? So let me frame this thing a little bit up in that, you know, Ben is not a developer. Ben is a, an investor. So right. he, he looks at things through that lens. And as a, as a company, he is looking to reduce his costs going forward so and having more control over his transactions in investing. His aim is at his customer, the investor, and so he's trying to, to reduce his costs and scale things for him in a way that makes it more efficient for, for the customer. 
and he talks about the competitive nature of private end- equity industry and in that he thinks over time his business is going to be uh, more effective than other private equity investors. So that's in that space. From a developer standpoint, vertical integration is not a new concept. It's been around for quite some time and that developers, uh, when they take control of a piece of land and get it zoned and, and up and, and up under construction and then through into bringing it onto operations, typically like to have uh, control over the process over time. And then when they finish the project, they have a sense of pride of the project typically and want to make it operate to its maximum standard and, and value over time. And then depending on their equity requirements internally and with their partners, what they have to do on the exit of the properties over time. So controlling different aspects of the business is sometimes an important factor. Examples of people that do that well is are Bazudo and, uh, yeah, JB, and JBG, the Rappaport companies. Gary Rappaport is very uh, vertically integrated. He keeps everything so among the other podcast interviewees that I've had, many of them are integrated. You wonder if moving forward, you know, assuming that we're looking at some tougher times ahead, you wonder if, if that causes some people to tighten up a little bit. Maybe maybe go back to focusing on what they know that they're best at and, and maybe they've, they've overextended themselves in some areas. Or does this have the exact opposite effect where, you know, you're looking at technology that Ben had mentioned, and vertical integration is what we think companies like Amazon are going to, you know, dominate as a result of that. You wonder if for real estate, if it has the same effect, or if people go back to doing maybe a smaller scope of uh, of, of things as a result of this. Well, I think uh, a big part of vertical integration in, in the real estate sector is that there are different touch points at different times in in, in ownership of property. Yeah. So when properties are cash flowing, then they can generate revenue that way. And it provides, you know, ongoing property management fees, et cetera, to owners of property. When the markets are really good, developers can go sign up transactions, get paid on development fees and how they're paid. When markets are more difficult, they lean heavily on their cash flow, if depending on the leverage they're in. And they lean heavily on their property management fees. So there's a diversification of their income streams, depending on the market cycles that, they're, that we're in. So right. right now, everyone's kind of very sensitive on cash flow and the fees, the fee structures to, to obviously pay their overhead. They're not going to be looking at new business as much. They're not going to take risk as much as they would have in other periods. If they have a construction project going on and they're not locked down, they're going to continue because obviously that generates fee revenue for them, et cetera. So it's a different mode that they're in depending on the marketplace that, that they're in at that time. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Good points. The, the next thing that I had here, John, was you guys got into kind of city living versus uh moving out to the suburbs. And, and I know that we, we talked a little bit about this after part one. And I, I over the weekend, I kind of um, was thinking about this a little bit more. And I think that there's, there's, a, there's a deeper level here. So Ben makes some really good points. And his outlook was, you know, that core office, 
high-end condos he anticipates are going to be impacted really hard here in the um, the, the short-term future. Multifamily, a little bit, probably a little bit less impacted than those two fields. But he talks a lot about multifamily and that it's a product of affordability. And and I, I can I can see, you know, being 30-some-year-old myself right now, recording from a 900 square foot apartment, I can see the appeal right now to to moving out and, and having a backyard and, and some of the advantages of that. And so I, I think what was interesting, Ben mostly focused on the technology aspect and how that's devalued location. And that with our ability to, to have Zoom calls and, and everything else that's going on right now, that there, there very well could be a shift from people living in the city. And I think that there's another thing at play right now on top of the technology aspect. And that's that the social aspect that we've gone through these past few months with, with COVID. And I think this book was previously mentioned on your podcast before, John, but the, uh, the new geography of jobs, which is a great book. I really enjoyed that read. I think it's contributed on some level with uh, the decision for Amazon to select DC. And basically it's got a lot of great points, but one of the big notions from the book is that young, talented people want to be where other young, talented people are. And, and there's, there's this huge transfer of information that comes along with the larger metropolitan, such as D.C., Boston, New York, San Francisco. And that, that adds huge value versus, you know, when the Internet comes out, people, you know, thought, well, there's going to be a shift to moving out to the suburbs or, or smaller metropolitans because people could be doing this work from anywhere. And, and we haven't necessarily seen that in recent history, but when COVID has resulted in people not being able to go out for happy hours and not going out for dinner and meeting with other, other people and having that, that social transfer of information, I think that that could also compound kind of the, some of the issues that Ben was getting into. What your thoughts are on that? It's interesting you suggest that. There's some counter-cyclical things going on. <laughs> Ben's comment about core office and luxury residential, both condo as well as multifamily, deteriorating in value it has an interesting thought process to it based on, obviously, what we're going through now. You ask yourself, as you're doing Zoom calls today, do I really need to go commute to wherever I need to commute to? and spend an hour in a vehicle or on, on a metro or whatever you're traveling on to deal with that, and I, where I can just sit in my living room and ha- get the same amount of work done. And the other question is, do you really need to be in the locations that you would normally be in because of proximity? You could live and work in the same location, and you wouldn't necessarily pay up for a really premier location in an urban environment, so you're walkable to amenities, et cetera. So there's a lot of considerations that, you know, he refers to, and he talks about remote, you know, moving to a remote market, working from there, and then being able to, as long as it has good healthcare and access to transportation, you know, airplane, you could live in a very inexpensive place 
work most of the time there and then fly in for meetings occasionally to larger, more expensive marketplaces. So it's an interesting thought that the values of real estate are going to be affected significantly, potentially in the, in the inner cities. There's debate on that. I think it could go either way. I, I agree with the new geography of jobs that people want to be close to young, talented people. But what does close mean anymore? Right. Is close, you physically have to be close or can you sit on a Zoom call and have as good a conversation or as, you know, I mean, we are a technical cultural right now where people spend more time on their phones and their, on the internet than they do in personal interaction. So it's just maybe a continuation and acceleration of that trend. Potentially. Yeah. You know, me, me and you met through ULI. They've been having that happy hour every, every couple of weeks that I know you've participated in a couple of times. And uh, the interesting thing about that has been it almost makes it more available for me in some ways. And, and it, it's been a really great learning experience kind of seeing that virtual happy hour come together. And I think that there are definitely some advantages there. You know, you could be working five minutes before we go live on that, that happy hour. Whereas before you'd have to be driving downtown and, you know, you're going to be home late and everything else that comes with that. So I think some of that stuff is going to stick. And, and then does that kind of morph some of the social aspects of, of how we've been doing business for a while now? Well, uh, one thing that I didn't mention earlier that I think is important to, to consider, and I think that there's less what I call chance meetings going on now. Yeah. So everything is now intentional. Everything's intentional. Let's say you're walking down the street in downtown Washington, you bump into somebody you haven't seen for a long time. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you might have a meeting pop up right. from that. You're right. at a function, uh, a cocktail party or a function, you know, a social engagement. And you see somebody there you, had, you hadn't anticipated seeing and you hadn't seen in a long time. Or you meet somebody new that you hadn't met before. Now, the happy hour has that opportunity, but you're not in a large enough setting to be able to see enough people, if you know what I'm saying. So you're missing that. Yeah, absolutely. But the question is, you know, what are the, tr it's just one of the trade-offs that you're looking for right now. And what does that mean long-term? Sometimes to me, more focus is a good thing, more intention. And it's less noise to have to go and filter through something that isn't necessarily long-term beneficial to you. So less incidental opportunities, but more intention. So I don't know if that means much, but it could long-term. Yeah, it's hard to measure those things too. Yep. All right. Last thing I got here, John, what was interesting was Ben gets into the disruptive aspect of, of what he's doing at Fundrise. And I was wondering, does it make you uncomfortable in any way, shape or form that, uh, that Ben is talking about something and, and he's pretty adamant on it that uh, could be very disruptive to the real estate financing market a career, you know, something that you've spent a career in. Are you skeptical in any way of, of, of some of his points? And uh, how do you think that, that something like this really could have an impact on structures that are out there in place right now? Well, interestingly, Tom, I'm, I'm fa I was fascinated with Ben's uh, mission from the get-go. I met with him yeah. within a year after he started, and I was very intrigued because, in, and I didn't mention this to you earlier before, but I wrote a thesis when I was in graduate school called The Real Estate 
real estate is a stock market in essence, trading real estate as if you could trade stocks. Yeah. So I've always been interested in the inter- wow. interplay of, of property like a security to some extent. Mm. So what he came up with was, you know, kind of a, an evolution of what my th- original thought was into reality. And so bring down real estate investment into a more of a consumer marketplace. And he talks about at length that it's primarily for institutional investors or high net worth. And his platform is, is democratizing the market, basically. Mm-hmm. He's bringing it down to the common man. And he's making it uh, equivalent to like a Vanguard company. And I talk about it in the, in the yeah. interview. That's good. And that you can enter in with different strategies depending on what your current situation is personally. So it's very much uh, like you're looking at a portfolio investment in, in stocks and bonds. And he looks at it from the real estate perspective and applies the, uh, the investment strategy in real estate to what a consumer would look for, which is a different approach than any other private equity source is. And it's lower cost because he lowers his fees down. So his belief is long-term that with the acceptance of the, his structure, that he may become the Amazon of <laughs> private equity and that yeah. he will drive the costs down that nobody can compete with him. Right. Which is kind right. of an interesting strategy. Yeah. And I, I think that it'll be interesting to see how it does impact. You know, it's, it's Amazon for sure hasn't done away with traditional retail, but it, it has forced it to change in, in a lot of ways. And it'll be interesting to see how Fundrise and other platforms like this may, uh, may shape how things move forward. Yes, it will be interesting to watch. <laughs> Any other questions, Tom? That's all I got today, John. Okay, well, thank you, Tom, for your insightful questions. I appreciate it. Thank and you, and uh, I'll talk with you soon. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you, listeners, for uh, listening to uh, this episode. And we'll the, the next one we have will be probably in another two to three weeks with uh, Bill James of Iron Point Partners. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.